Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by Usha Reddy. Usha Reddy currently serves as the city commissioner for Manhattan, Kansas. She just completed her second term as mayor for Manhattan, Kansas, and was elected in 2013 and then again for a second term in 2017. She recently announced she will again put her hat in the ring for a third term as mayor of Manhattan, Kansas. Usha is the first Indian American to serve as the mayor in Kansas. She's also the first immigrant and first woman of color to serve on the Manhattan City Commission. Usha was also just selected as an officer to the Kansas DNC. Usha, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me back on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are very excited to welcome you again. And it has been quite some time since we we spoke with you and truly one of the most inspiring politicians that I've ever spoken with, not just for your personal story and overcoming immense challenges and hardships, but also just your consistent belief in the democracy of this country, so much so mm-hmm. that you devoted your life to pursuing upholding the the basis upon which this country was founded, and even more so now that you have put your hat in the ring for mayor of Manhattan, right. Kansas, once again, and you continue to fulfill the challenging duties related to the city commissioner position. So just want to catch up with you and hear more about this mayoral campaign. Sure, sure. Actually, in the city of Manhattan, we don't have a mayoral campaign uh, per se. What we do have is three seats up for election out of the five. And the two top vote getters from that have a mayor rotation. So each one is a mayor for a year, and then it's rotated to the next individual that had the most votes out of the three. So it's a city commission race. And if you're one of the top two vote getters, you're in the rotation to be mayor. So I was mayor in uh, 1617 and then mayor in 20 last year. And of course, uh, should I become one of the top contenders in the top two seats, I will be mayor again at some point. Yeah, I didn't really have an intention of running one more time for a third term, but I felt it necessary because we are just now recovering from the pandemic. And during my term as mayor, I mean, we just had to make so many difficult decisions. And uh, sadly, some of the votes were 3-2. So there were some people who still didn't believe in the pandemic or that we didn't need masks or we didn't have to put in the capacity restrictions and such. So I understand that piece of it. But now as we're moving forward, I felt we are working on a strategic plan for our city. We have a diversity, equity, inclusion committee that we set up to see what we need to do differently to make sure we are being more inclusive in our community. So all of these things prompted me to run again for the city commission and hopefully eventually be mayor once again. Uh, There's just too much at stake. 
And I feel I still have the energy, the drive and the motivation to do what's in the best interest of my community. So, yeah, I think um, it's essential that we have representation at the table. And that's what I'm seeking once again. Well, and I think that underscores just who you are as a person. You've been on this arduous journey of uh, in the leadership role of mayor. And of course, you did the work when it was just so incredibly challenging with the pandemic just starting and constantly twists and turns as it's, it's grown into one of the deadliest viruses that's ever um, hit this country. But you were on the forefront of that as a mayor. And I might add one of the few female leaders in this country in the position of mayor. So really my hat goes off to you. And I can, I'm so glad that you're doing this because absolutely you should be captaining mm-hmm. the ship, in my opinion, since you, you know, have already gotten the city to this point in time. And I did want to ask you, as far as the diversity, equity, and inclusion, did you also notice that the Black community in Mm -hmm. Manhattan and across Kansas was disparately affected in a negative way as compared to, and of course, Native Americans, Indigenous people as well? Is that also what was seen when you're looking at the data? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, even to get DEI group uh, task force set up, that was also a 3-2 vote. So, uh, you know, there was this apparent division even in our community of uh, city of Manhattan in Kansas. But it was very, the pandemic definitely brought up all of those challenges, not only in the healthcare system, but in the education system. If you are pre-K through 12 and they're being, you know, have to be taught at home now, so many people didn't have internet service. So many people didn't even have a laptop. And they were, you know, students were having to use their mom and dad's iPhone. Mom and dads are having to work at home and also teach their kids. And this impacted women in such a dramatic manner for remote teaching of their child, as well as working remotely and still continuing all the domestic duties that they've done in the past. The BIPOC community, of course, has been extremely challenged for same reasons, such as the uh, lack of uh, broadband and such, but also their jobs. You know, when we think about essential workers, that's the community that was working in their grocery stores and, you know, frontline workers doing all of these uh, CNAs, everybody that wasn't getting paid enough, but they needed the job just to make ends meet and constantly putting their lives at risk. And that's what we saw. We saw a lot of these communities ending up in the hospital or having more health concerns than other groups uh, because they were not in the middle class. They weren't They didn't have the job security or the health insurance security enough to stop working and go remote. That just was not what they could do. And that's what we want to do. We want to make sure our young students who are, you know, getting out of school with more debt than ever before, our um, Black and African-American community also need the same type of uh, housing, internet services, and insurance, increasing their salaries from minimum wage to 15 for all groups involved. So these were definitely some of the challenges. And that's what this task force is doing to see how do we address that? What kind of funds are needed? What kind of representation is needed? How do we work with our police department? How do we work with our uh, schools and our teachers, our principals, and just the local populace in general? Uh, There's a lot population that doesn't believe we have a problem with with the diversity. And that's a whole different issue. So unless you recognize there's a problem, you can't really sit down and discuss solutions. So that's become a huge barrier as well. So, yeah, these are challenging times. And I think we just need to continue to work hard and uh, break down each of those barriers so that everybody has an equal chance of being successful. 
Well, no, that is an extremely insightful perspective because as you um, brought up, broadband is something we don't even think about. And it speaks to my privilege, I'll say this, but absolutely it would disparately affect Black communities, BIPOC communities. And we don't even think about that. Huge, huge hurdle in terms of trying to pursue education in these challenging times. And and looking at, um, well, let me ask you this. When you're looking at these variations in the virus, and we now have the Delta variant, Mm -hmm. and there may be more to come, are you concerned about what the fall and the winter look like? And then, as you brought up, Mm -hmm. we have a huge contingency of Americans that simply are refusing the vaccine, even some in the healthcare field. Right. And I know many of your children and family are in healthcare as well. So what is the, the stumbling block to accepting this vaccine? And how, as a leader, would you propose to overcome some of that hesitancy? Yeah, that's the biggest challenge of all. So I live in a university town with Kansas State University, and they're planning on opening up, you know, their sports and students, uh, dorms, everything. So I'm in content communication with our hospitals, with our caretakers, with our health department and the university. And those are some of the things we're discussing. Once again, you know, that's what people are thinking about. Do we need to have capacity restrictions? How do we address this? And the point is, even if we put in a mask mandate, the individuals that didn't get a vaccine aren't going to put a mask on. They didn't put it on before when it was a mandate. That doesn't mean it's going to change their behavior. Now they're going to put on a mask. So I'm not sure that's the solution. The typical people that are going to wear a mask are the ones that are already vaccinated. So how do we address this issue? I'm also president of a rotary called Rotary Club of Community Action Against Human Trafficking. And we applied for a grant which uh, incentivizes people to get the vaccine. So the vulnerable population that I'm addressing in a different capacity are survivors of human trafficking or domestic abuse or sexual violence. And what we put for our action plan was, one, they don't want to be identified. So we were able to get healthcare workers where these individuals can come in, do not have to give their ID, do not have to show any type of identification. They can put any name on the sheet that they want, because mainly what the healthcare workers have to show is how many vaccines were used, not necessarily who got it. So that's what we told them. They can do that. They don't have to show ID. They don't have to identify themselves. The second thing is a one and done, like a Johnson Johnson shot. They're not going to come back for a second shot. So we had to make sure we got them. You get one and then you're done. So you talk about vaccine hesitancy. So we have the grant put in for our incentive plan to give them $50 Amazon gift cards. So that's what we did. And, you know, that we were able to get several vaccinated on Friday last week, and we're going to get a few more Thursday. So making it anonymous so they don't have to ID themselves, making it a one and done kind of shot so you don't have to worry about getting a second shot and incentivizing them. Those three things have worked for this particular population, and that might work for other populations. So that's what we need to think about. How do we get them vaccinated? The point is vaccinating them. And it also impacts health insurance premiums. As these individuals that are not vaccinated, if they get the virus, one, it's easily transmissible. And if they end up in the hospital, they're staying there longer. So that that impacts all of our premiums. So I think the health insurance companies also have to step up and see what they need to do uh, to make sure it doesn't happen. Otherwise, there's so many people that will not be able to afford insurance the next time around, including businesses. At some point, we need to come to, we may end up requiring 
or mandating or showing that you did get vaccinated. Otherwise, you're putting a lot of people at risk. Our children under 12 can't get a vaccine yet, and they're going to be more at risk if uh, teachers or parents or someone else is choosing not to get a vaccine. So it's a it's a huge ideology philosophical issue, and it shouldn't have to be. It should just be, here's the science and get a vaccine. But that's not where we're at in some populations. No, those are excellent points. And I really hadn't thought about the fact that our healthcare systems will be overburdened and there's a fiscal mm-hmm. price tag to all this for those that are not getting vaccinated. And ironically, many may be of Republican persuasion. Although I would offer that I think even the Republican Party find themselves a bit bewildered that that they are now bold anti-vaxxers. I don't know that that was necessarily part of the strategy in terms of Republicans, but if they are the party of fiscal responsibility, then that that's a very important point that you bring up. And the healthcare system cannot manage that. And you're right, the duration of stay at hospitals will be increased. It's just a disaster mm-hmm. overall. And I did want to ask you, what's interesting is I did hear that the U.S. Surgeon General, who happens to be of Indian descent, Dr. Vivek Murthy, mentioned that he's lost 10 family members to the COVID virus, which was just shocking and staggering. But anything you want to speak to regarding India and the deadly second wave, as I know you're of Indian descent as well, and and the need for global vaccine equity um, and any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I think the Biden-Harris administration is doing what they can to send some of our vaccines to other countries, including India. And India, I think, you know, they're trying to give as many vaccines as possible. In fact, they there's such a need and people are taking them. But if you get the first Pfizer or Moderna shot, they're even waiting up to 30 to 60 to 90 days before you take the second one because they need everyone to take that first one. So they're trying to do everything they can. The challenges that India faces is also this corruption. So they're either halting vaccines that only go to, you know, the individuals that are well-to-do or middle class and not going out into the villages and poverty level folks, everyday citizens. And there was a lot of Indians that sent ventilators there to help out the hospitals. And even those were being black on the black market. So we can send as many as needed. We just need to get it out to the people. And that's always been the challenge for any kind of humanitarian aid or charity aid that we send to other countries. The corruption is the barrier. But I think a lot, there's a lot of good people here in the United States that are doing everything they can to send money, to send vaccines, to send ventilators. And even our own physicians are going there to help out. But this virus spreads so fast and is so deadly that you know, we can only stop so much. And I think it's kind of uh, plateaued. But the point in in the United States is we are so privileged that we are choosing not to take the vaccine. And that kind of dilemma is just staggering. In India, I mean, they're, they're literally wanting to take the vaccine and doing everything they can to get the vaccine. But, um, the, the philosophy there is different, but the black market is huge and corruption is huge. In the United States, that's not the same. The vaccine is free and it's available to everybody. And there are health departments that are sending it back because they don't have people taking the vaccine. So thank you for pointing that out. You're right. I mean, it's just so ironic and tragic in a lot of ways, but you're right. It speaks mm-hmm. to some of the privilege in this country and you're any, there's a cost for it in India many times. Um, oh, yeah. And perhaps that's not the case anymore, but you're right. 
So I sincerely hope I'll be watching that. I think those are amazing strategies. I know that in Ohio, Governor DeWine implemented the Vaximillion. I do wish he had taken the approach that you did, a bit more democratic so that everybody gets incentivized, not just a few that are uh, chosen from a lottery. But then again, I'm not the governor. So in any case, I did want to ask you about your experience at the DNC. I know that you're in Mm -hmm. an executive leadership role in Kansas, and I want to learn more about that and and how that has expanded some of the work that you're doing in the public sector. Sure. So yeah, I was uh, elected to be the DNC committee woman for Kansas, and it's been wonderful. Unfortunately, we haven't had in-person meetings, but I've been able to meet a lot of people of so many Zoom meetings with the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus, as well as having constant communication with what the Biden-Harris administration is doing, whether it's regarding the American Rescue Plan and the aid that's going out, or for any kind of voting suppression laws that are going out and what the Biden administration is doing. So we get all of that information as part of being the, the group for Kansas. And we just try to disseminate as much as we can throughout Kansas. But one of the pieces that I kind of am spearheading with a smaller group with the Kansas Democratic Party is their own diversity, equity, inclusion uh, subcommittee. So we are looking at platforms and changing the platforms so that we can also include a lot about diversity and race and LGBT community and the BIPOC community. What we noticed is when we talk about systemic racism, even our own platforms are, you know, filled with those types of uh, barriers. So we, I am working with the DNC and with the KDP and trying to change some of our own platforms so we are more inclusive and understanding whether it's about criminal justice or healthcare or housing. It's just not broad and vast where we continuously say all, but we need to be specific how some of these systems have put up barriers for the Black community or for the LGBT community. Voter suppression, how does that look like? What do we need to do to make it more inclusive so more people can vote as opposed to decreasing the percentage? So that's been extremely helpful. The DNC has this uh, Best Practice Institute, and they have nine modules for diversity equity training. And those were wonderful, which I was able to utilize being DNC committee woman for my own state group. So those are some pieces that where we don't have to reinvent the wheel and we can work collaboratively and make sure we have the right types of training necessary because the funding was already there and they already made all of this. Oftentimes we come back to how do we fund these things? The other piece is we are able to work with uh, Jamie Harrison, DNC chair, to make sure the state of Kansas has enough funds to do the grassroots voter registration and operations. We know we have a lot of Democrats along with Republicans in the in Kansas, but we're not getting them out to vote. And uh, we're focusing more on kind of what a Stacey Abrams mechanism did in Georgia, but also for Kansas. And uh, that's been one of uh, Jamie Harrison's my major priorities. So we are trying to implement some of those things within our own state and especially with our groups that typically don't get registered to vote or choose not to vote because they don't think it matters because they're in a red state. So. No, that's extremely insightful. And I had the opportunity to interview Sarah Shaw from impact.org, mm-hmm. which I know you are very familiar with. And I was blown away by the Oppie outreach, and you've right. sort of referenced it briefly. And the fact that they went to WhatsApp, they had a Bollywood event, they really started to do tailored outreach to right. the Indian American vote, South Asian vote. I was just blown away that 
this has never happened before. And to recognize we are not a monolith. I mean, within Mm. the umbrella of Asia, so much diversity. And my hat goes off to the DNC because I have not seen this from the Republican Party in any way, shape or form. And if they don't do this, they are going to continue to lose that contingency of voters. I, I wanted to know if you had anything to comment yeah. on about that. Yeah, you bring up a great point. When we talk about Asian Pacific Islanders, yeah, it's vast and it represents so many types of Asians. And uh, that reach out is huge. And I think, you know, I can't speak to what the RNC or the Republican Party is doing, but I do know uh, the DNC, we are being very deliberate and trying to reach out. There are a lot of people that are either first gen or second gen immigrations here, immigrants here that just don't feel like why bother voting? You know, people are going to vote any way they want. I came here for the opportunities. I don't want to be political. Well, everything is political. And I think that's where we are having the impact is uh, educating them, letting them know why it's important to one, register to vote and two, get out and vote because this impacts funding, but it also impacts a lot of immigration laws. The reason they came here is for the opportunities. But if those immigration gates get shut down or for DACA or for Dreamers or even just your regular green card pathway to citizenship, if that's taking you 10 to 20 to 50 years, I mean, that's crazy. So those are the issues that are relevant to them that we can speak about that other groups cannot speak about. And, uh, you know, most of these people that are waiting for green cards, they can't go back to India. They're afraid if they go back, they can't come back. So that's very sad, but that's an issue that's important to them. So as the AAPI community, we can speak to those issues and be very intentional when we are recruiting people or when we are telling them why these issues are important to them. Yeah, so it's been really good. Absolutely. No, I just getting, I think, Patel Brothers involved, WhatsApp, a Bollywood event, and really offering language translation or reaching out in perhaps Gujarati or whatever the native tongue. It's a watershed moment. It really is. It's amazing that this hasn't happened before. But Sarah pointed out that this is directly tied to being able to flip the two seats in Georgia uh, to the Democratic Party. And so even if we're just four percent of the vote, whether that's nationally or statewide, it makes a difference. It really does. And so, you know, really applaud your leadership within the DNC in Kansas. And any other topics that you want to bring up, which you're really impassioned about as we look at the Biden-Harris administration? I mean, I definitely think, and I I don't know if you'd agree with this, that there's that level of contentiousness now that Mm -hmm. Trump is gone, I think is somewhat refreshing because we can all focus on some of the tasks at hand here as a country. I wouldn't say that we're necessarily harmonious completely, but want to get your thoughts on what you see, you know, within that you're happy about and and areas for improvement. Oh, yes. I think this is the type of climate we are used to and accustomed to. We have the right type of you know, given give and take, we have the right type of climate for discussion, and we will always have extremes. That's been the historically that's been the case. What's uniquely different and refreshing is that we don't wake up to trauma every day. We don't wake up and check Twitter and say, "Oh my God, what happened now?" So the past four years have been that. So I don't feel like I have to check the news every day. I don't feel like you know I'm going to lose sleep over what's going to happen next. And I don't feel hatred. I feel your regular discourse. You know, I think we're going to take sides, let's say, on the vaccine or we're going to take sides on the economy. That's normal politics. And that's the way it should be. 
And that's how we are still engaged. And typically it should be somewhat boring, but somewhat wonky. And that's what it is right now. We're actually talking about policies. And I think that's that's the right place to be. The Biden-Harris administration has done an amazing job of putting in as much money as they have into the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion, putting that into people's um, bank accounts, as well as businesses and the hospitality industry. That's why the economy is thriving again. And this misunderstanding about employee benefits shouldn't go to those individuals. That's why we're not getting any employees back to work. That's a, a myth. A lot of people now figured out how to work remotely and make more money. A lot of people figured out they don't want to be a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant and get yelled at and get very low wages for that. So a lot of people figured there are ways, better ways to make money. And it's disingenuous for other organizations to say these individuals should not get those $1,500 or whatever it might be in their account. That's their only survival mechanism for some of them. Businesses made millions and millions of dollars off of the PPP funds and all the CARES money. So they made a lot of money to sustain themselves. Are they thriving? I don't know. Some might be. But individuals need that as well. And I appreciate that uh, Kamala Harris, our vice president, is taking on voter suppression, putting in $25 million to make sure we get more people that are eligible to vote and see what we can do to bring them into the fold. And she has done an incredible job being a, a woman of color, being having women in, from Indian descent, as well as African-American. She has uh, done a wonderful job as a leader. And I really admire her capability, capacity, and language. And um, Dr. Jill Biden, same. I think these two women have been incredible for, for leadership in our country and have really pulled up a lot of other women to take up those positions as well. Yeah. And regardless of one's political affiliation, what a remarkable shift to seeing two strong women leading the dialogue, Dr. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, whereas the previous administration, there really were not many powerful women to be found or women in decision-making roles. So I definitely unquestionably applaud that. And I also wanted to ask you, as you look forward and potentially at taking the reins Mm -hmm. of mayor in Manhattan, Besides a pandemic, what else sort of gets you up every day excited to do your job? Is it the constituents? Is it to know? Because I, I thought about something as you were speaking, and that is you're a legislator. So you living through the Trump era is very different than uh, perhaps myself, a layperson, mm. you know, just a constituent. I would imagine the level of alarm would be intensified. And I, mm. I get it now that legislators all across the country were just throwing their arms up in the air like, how is this happening? How right. is this occurring? And so it kind of gave me a new level of appreciation that you can wake up every day now sort of not with this trauma response. And, yeah. you know, a lot of Americans perhaps didn't have that type of reaction, although they knew it wasn't a great climate in which to exist. And so, yeah, just speak to me more about some of that. Sure. Yeah. No, I really enjoy what I do. I do enjoy the city of Manhattan and the people I represent. When I wake up, I never take for granted as a city commissioner or a mayor that I was elected to this position in a very red state, being an immigrant woman and that I've never expected to be in and, and, and being a public school teacher at that. I'm not a business owner. I don't I'm not a real estate agent, but I'm a public school teacher and even more an elementary school teacher. So 
I believe in the community that elected me, and I have a lot of friends here, and we are a good community, friendly to each other, work for each other, and very welcoming. And I do enjoy the university as well as Fort Riley. So I think that's what gets me up in the morning and eager and excited to continue this path and the energy I'm driven to make sure we are still growing. Our challenges is not the city of Manhattan, but the state of Kansas and the perception of Kansas being uh, backward or redneck or, you know, some of the voter suppression laws that we have. That's what bothers me the most. But I, once people come to Manhattan, they do fall in love with it and want to live and stay here and work here. So my goal is to see how we can make that even better. So I think that drives me. And plus my children, you know, they live in three different places in New York and in Indiana and in California. And they're proud of the city of Manhattan. And now that they're adults, I can have regular adult conversations with them. And I value their feedback and what they see from their eyes from the states that they're in. So I think it, um, it elevates the position I'm in to put in policies that make this community a better place long after I'm gone. And that's a, a good motivator for me. Oh, that's so incredibly beautiful. And you are the American dream in, in the embodiment, if I may say so. It is such a remarkable story. And one of the first interviews that I, I did mm -hmm. in kicking off this series, and to this day, you inspire me. So anybody listening, please look up Usha's story, understand that anything is possible. Yeah. I really believe your story is just the culmination of all that. So thank you so much. And I just yeah. have utmost respect for you. And especially as you stated as a mother and, you know, getting out there and doing the hard work. Mm -hmm. We will be watching your campaign. I will have links to it in the podcast notes as well. Absolutely. And we cannot thank you enough for joining us again today. Yeah. Usha Reddy. Thank you, Sonia. I hope you have a great day and thanks for having me back on. Oh, thank you.